Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. You know, I previous well, recently I spoke at a high school here in Nashville, and the conversation inevitably went to college and career readiness, workforce development, sort of mm-hmm. you know, what's next for students. And so I wanted to bring somebody in who is very passionate about this um, and started a company called Parent. It's Michael Simpson. He's the CEO and co-founder. He's also a chocolatier. I want to hear a little bit about that, uh, Michael. <laughs> um, but you're you're in an area, and I know you're the industries that you serve are government workforce development, secondary ed, and post-secondary ed. I guess the first question would be, why? I think a lot of people would say, wow, those are some murky waters that are, you know, it, it's really hard to pin the tail uh, on this subject because it's ever changing. Um, and you're dealing with youth that are invariably, you know, changing their minds and what they want to do a, on a moment's notice. And generations are very different. So give me a little bit of the background as to why uh, parent for you. Well, I- Really, parent is a, a culmination of my own life experience. I, I grew up in a very uh, disadvantaged situation. I had a father with PTSD uh, uh, from the military, and um, I we had a lot of financial problems. And I actually started working at a very, very young age, uh, long before uh, is appropriate uh, for people to work. <laughs> and <laughs> Um, can't really ever remember not working, to be honest. I had to drop out of community college after a couple of months and work four jobs just to help my family and uh, and survive myself. And so I, I spent 10 years of my career trying to you know figure out what on earth can I do? What should I do? And fortunately, the computer industry was starting at the time, uh, personal computer industry in the 80s, that dates me. Um, And I did what people call today stacking certificates, uh, because you couldn't learn this type of technology in uh, colleges and universities. Um, You could only learn it from the manufacturers. Um, And that I grew that with some really good mentoring and coaching and development. I grew that into, um, you know, running strategy uh, for billion dollar products at you know, really large software companies. Uh, and um, and so at, after one of the companies I was running strategy for sold in 2001, I became a, a coach and coached businesses. And I actually moved to Russia for seven years to wow. coach um, um, mostly adult children of alcoholics, which is mostly adult children over there um, and uh, to be successful in business. And then I, I came back and started uh, parent um, to really uh, help um, individuals and the what we call the alongsiders, the professionals that have dedicated their lives to helping people along their career journeys, to be able to find really what um, maybe they were created to do and be, and and to understand their abilities, understand opportunities that maybe their social reference would never introduce them to, right? They don't have people around them. So you just do what you see the people around you doing, which constantly increases the economic divide um, and the social divide because there's some groups that are advancing and then the next generation sees how they've advanced and they do that. And there's some groups that don't advance uh, because that's just what you do. And so uh, I created Parent to be able to 
help individuals uh, connect to the relevant resources for them that can also introduce them to new opportunities, but then to also um, identify and track the success of those programs um, uh, through data integration so that those programs can improve. I, I believe that the, the, the single largest barrier to people either making good choices about education and also for our education system to uh, respond to the needs of the students that they're educating is the lack of appropriate data. Um, and so we're trying to solve that problem to really measure the true outcomes of education um, on both ends of it so that uh, policies can be changed, that you know educational institutions can be held accountable um, and possibly be forced to, frankly, give a damn about um, what happens to their students once they leave that institution. What's the response from the education sector when Perrin walks in the door? Uh, well, we usually come in through state policy. So like in the state of Virginia, we created a, a, a data integration platform called uh, Education Meets Opportunity Platform. Um, and it was through uh, state policy. It was created by the governor. It, it, I think it's honestly the one of the most uh, sweeping education workforce reforms that has ever occurred uh, in the nation. And so that policy existed first. We just happen to be the implementers of it. And so we try to make it as non-threatening as possible. But what's interesting is that every education program in the state um, participates in that data collection except for the universities. Except for the universities. Except for the universities. Why would that be? I mean, I see this is obviously a podcast, so people can't see your face, but I, but I could see a reaction uh, when you said that. <laughs> well, if if you think about it, how do the universities get paid? When well, do they, they get, get paid? They largely from tuition, I would imagine. Which is in advance of you getting a degree. Yes. Right? So they get paid whether you succeed in life or not. That what really needs to change, if you look at the career services at most universities, they're less funded than the janitorial services, right? So, and, so say that one more yeah. time, because I think that that will be, we that should services, not just be a speed bump that we roll over. Career services. If you walk into a career services for a university, sometimes you'll find eight people and 10,000 students. Right. So in I a mean, sense, what are we that. really what are we really valuing by what we're putting in an office space in that manner? But then you look at the sports. How many people are involved in that? How much money is put into that? I don't have a problem with sports, love sports, right? But you can see where someone's values are, where their money is spent, right? Um, and the thing is, is that there isn't an accountability. The only data previously available. Uh, to identify what the ROI of an education was, was the college scorecard created by this amazing woman called Kathy Stack. Um, and her uh, name's Kathy Stack. And she worked with the U.S. Department of Education, worked her whole career to be able to get only an institution level, like outcome data. And so, so a liberal arts degree at Harvard is rated the same as a Harvard MBA, right? Outcomes not the same. But since it's institution level, that's all you get. Now, what we've done in Colorado and Virginia is we've gone to a program level, right? So we we actually match wage and tax data to to uh, student uh, outcomes and program outcomes. So we can 
um, in Colorado, even for the institutions, the, the universities, we can say, hey, if you go to Colorado School of Mines versus this other community college for the same degree um, or, or this university for the same degree, it's going to cost you more up front. But in X number of years, you're going to make $480,000 more, right? Um, only two states that I know of actually have that, and those are the two states that we initiated it for. And so, so now you some, take that data and you put it in tools for the individual, they can make wise choices. So I would imagine that depending upon the door that you you enter, you're either a friend or a foe, not to make it a binary choice, but yeah. you know, you are, I, I agree with you. I mean, I will tell you that I have been in a, I will not name the university, but I was in a, a meeting uh, of a certain discipline with board members and they talked about placement. And I know this will not shock you, it might shock the audience, but there was a certain degree, degree program at a master's level that the placement was zero, mm -hmm. Michael, zero. Mm -hmm. And they voted to keep it going mm -hmm. because- That's not surprised me. They were securing, these students were coming from another part of the world and it was a very high dollar degree and it was- my interpretation uh -huh. is it's a cash cow, so we're going to keep that up. It's very steady revenue that we can execute against in our budgets. So, so what other business um, uh, can succeed with no care for customer satisfaction? Gosh, like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care. I don't care what happens <laughs> after you buy my service. It's our yeah, education I, system today. And it would say, tell me, I mean, look, I think that it's not just that career services at the university level are um, sort of void of, of attention and resource, but also feels cultural as well. I mean, I don't know what it's like today for a high school junior, let's say, but are they accessing their college counselors, their career well, counselors average, in their high schools? Well, this is this is a, a, a statistic I believe is still true. I, I knew it a few years ago, but let's say for a a there's on average one school counselor for per three to five hundred students, and they on average get thirty minutes per student per per year per year that, to, to plan specifically career. Uh, so software becomes important. That's one of the roles that we play, right? It becomes important, but they, they most students of it, like I never met my school counselor about careers, right? Uh, when I was in high school, that would have been helpful, right? Never did that. Um, didn't really know that was a resource available to me. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Um, a lot of folks don't have those conversations. Um, and I, I'm sure some folks could, some students could take more advantage of it, but they're just, uh, there's just incredibly limited resource. I, I would say if you talk to, you know, all types of people at a high school, um, you will find that the least resource group are the counselors. And that's Almost the every one time. area, Michael, I would contend where relationships matter mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with students, that engagement, that rapport building. You're not going to just walk in for 30 minutes a year and say, this is what I'm looking to do. Or mm -hmm. Counselor Michael, could you help me out? Because these are some of the things that I think are interesting. We'll have no yeah. rapport. And yet we're talking about everything from school safety to campus safety. I mean, these mm -hmm. are things about kids feeling detached. And not that we have to get into that subject, but you're not going to get connected to the data or the opportunities or the resources if you actually don't have that face-to-face -face time. Yeah, yeah. 
And so the only and, and it's not being resourced. Uh, this is a conversation that's happening all over the U.S. Uh, that there's a whole bunch of organizations that are saying the number one thing we need to do for our students is to resource career services. Um, and then there are schools like one of our clients is uh, Baltimore City Public Schools. And um, we typically you know, don't normally sell to K-12 unless their issue is direct pass to employment. And, and uh, years ago, uh, the folks in charge of uh, direct pass to employment for um, in career services for Baltimore City Public Schools, which, you know, they've had a lot of struggles. They, they, they're, it's a difficult environment. Um, I said, I, I at the time, I did, we're not really targeting that audience. And they go, can we please look at your platform? And, and, and I said, I tried to talk them out of looking at our platform. They go, can we just get a demo? And so five minutes into it, I'm saying, this is kind of what it does. It connects people to this and this. And, and they start laughing. And I'm like, can you let me in on the joke? And they said, well, we're trying to keep our poker face. But for five years, we've been looking for something that would help us customize uh, for uh, our students, you know, based on their interests and opportunities, what we can connect them to. And I said, I'm really not looking to sell to K-12. And they said, Michael, this is a life or death situation. We have some percentage, I think it's like in the teens of students that actually graduate from post-secondary. And if by the age of 24, they have not found work and been trained for work, they're either in jail, they're dead, they're in a gang, they're drug addicted, they're in prostitution. Um, and a, a, a very large percentage of them is actually a shocking number. And they said, this is life or death. We have to connect them to work, right? Um, now, a lot of in, in well-heeled uh, sub, suburbs, um, folks will go to college to figure out what they want to do, right? Oh, you don't need to know. Just go to college. You'll sort it out later. Yeah, now, but right? not everybody has that runway. Nobody. I didn't have that ability. You know, I had to go to work. I had to figure it out myself. So, right? so then paint the picture for me. So Baltimore, so they bring you in. And what's the difference? Tell me about what it looks like once it's implemented. Yeah, so there's workflows. We 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 have these things called outcomes, goals, and steps, and it's basically working in education. It's called backwards design. You kind of work with the outcome in mind. As a coach, I know one of the best questions you can ask someone is, "What do you want?" Right? Whether it's just a conversation for a particular coaching session or something, what is the outcome that you want? What we try to do is, is like, let's say a, a ninth grader uh, at a particular school at, in September access was told to access our platform. Well, at that point, um, we know, we say, what what um, uh, school are you associated with? So we know that they're in this school, we know what time of year it is. So we present to them this kind of little starter outcome that, hey, I need to explore my career opportunities. And so they go through and they take assessments and they do this and kind of get a basic career idea. When they start to interact with the platform, it recommends other outcomes. So they say, wow, I'm kind of interested in technology or I might be interested in you know, working while I'm in high school. And so then it'll recommend these other things. And what happens is we, we kind of think of our, our business logic as, you know, we, we try to get people, if you think that you go to a stadium, right, for a sporting event, we try to get people in the right stadium, then we get them to their right section, right, that's your school, um, and then we take you to your seat, and then it's up to you to personalize your experience from that point forward, right, you order popcorn or drinks or whatever, and that's as you interact with the system, the system then starts to bring you information a little bit at a time and brings you tools and assessments, links you to websites, you know, you can say, hey, I didn't know anything about 
the military, but uh, you know, I'm interested in that. And so we bring information in, whether it's embedded curriculum or whatever. So we design it with like their school counselors. So I think there's 29 school counselors in that district that have been writing content. It's the whole idea of if you could have unlimited time to spend with someone, what would you walk them through? Like for financial aid, you know, we said, what do you do today? Well, we send them to the FAFSA website. And we're like, well, how does that work out for you? It doesn't work out very well because it's very complicated. It's very like, complicated. Well, if you had unlimited time, what would you do? Well, we'd probably teach them about debt. And so that's a lesson. And we know what the lesson is, but we don't have time to do that. We would probably have them build a budget. We'd probably um, help them understand um, uh, scholarships. We would go through all these different things. We would have them prepare their documents, do a, do a sample. We'd have them get the minimum amount so they don't get in a whole lot of debt and and do that work in advance of applying. I'm like, well, let's put that in a workflow so all of that stuff can happen. And then when they meet with you for the glorious 15 to 30 minutes that they get, that they can actually have a meaningful conversation rather than going, financial aid? What's that? Is that so it sounds like it changes the uh, the calculus for counselors. In essence, you're 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 integrating them in as educators. I mean, talking about lesson yeah. development and walking them through a sequence to learn a set of skills. Yeah, we 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 you know they they have a valuable amount of knowledge, but they don't have the time and resource to be able to deliver it to everyone. So what we try to do is automate the process of the delivery of that knowledge to individuals as personalized as possible. But we don't take that professional out of the discussion. We just want to make that conversation. That, that glorious few minutes they get, we want to make it meaningful. How do you connect the dots? So, you know, we've seen this countless times with great technology and platforms where you have something amazing, but there's that, you have to have that connective tissue, right? Like I've got to have a Michael who connects me and says, Rod, this is what this is and what it can do. How do you do that to ensure that all the time and energy and resource that you and your company have put forth is going to be realized in the hands of the users that we're trying to make a difference for? Well, there's an interesting dynamic in working with education and government um, is that this just statistically I mean, people who are in jobs that guarantee lifelong retirement. If you stay in that job for 20 to 25 years, self-select. The, the larger majority, not all people, self-selects people that are resistant to change. Like I would go nuts. You say, all right, if you can stay in this one job for 25 years, you look at both. all the benefits you're going to get. <laughs> I mean, I'd lose my mind. So, so that the whole idea of the way that compensation is structured and benefits are structured, self-select people resistant to change. So, they, and so now we're bringing in a new way of doing the thing that you've been doing for yeah, X uh -oh. number of years or decades, <laughs> right? So we have a team uh, that are experts in large-scale government change. And uh, so we have uh, X McKenzie. My COO actually helped reorganize the FBI after 9-11, worked in post-war Iraq to help them transition into a capitalistic society instead of state-owned industry. Um, and, and, and she thought that she wouldn't necessarily need those skills in a software company, but trying to implement software and education and government is kind of like a, a post-war zone. Uh, so you, you're dealing with a lot of, you know, resistance and, and a lot of fears. 
And so we've implemented this uh, change management process that, and, you know, we've got ex-BCG people and McKinsey and, and folks who've worked in workforce and education so they can empathize and relate and use the same language. So we've got this remarkable team that goes in and approaches our software deployments as a consulting operation initially. Um, and we make our software very easy to deploy so we can front end all of those discussions. Like, tell me what you do, right? What are the struggles that you have? So we start with a place of empathy. They, they feel themselves heard, right? And understood. And when someone believes that whoever they're talking to understands them and empathizes with them, they're much more likely to, um, you know, help and to respond. What role, or t- kind of walk me into a discussion you have with your leadership team when it pertains to AI. I'm sure AI can help on oh, the platform yeah. side, but it can also be the elephant in the room when it comes to, you know, careers people are going to be choosing, what mm-hmm. might be mm-hmm. weeded out over time. Um, and every day it feels like there's another headline about the next industry that's going to be negatively impacted yeah. by, <laughs> by AI taking over the work that uh, previously was done by folks like you and me. Well, kind of maybe coincidentally, we we recently announced an acquisition of a company called Saviest um, that is an AI-driven resume and cover letter creator. And so we've brought this AI technology into our own organization. Um, and so there's there's two bits to what you're asking there. One is what what opportunities are are created by AI, and what harm could AI do to directing people to AI, uh, to uh, opportunities in a biased way, right? So there's, there's, there's two things that have to be considered. So we're kind of on both sides of this issue um, because we're, we are using AI. Uh, so we have to focus on what I call, and somebody wrote a book about this. I haven't read it, but uh, he, he, he took my, he took my shtick because uh, <laughs> I, I call it the conscientious AI and, and to be able to model, not like, like a lot of AI systems that do career pathing, they like uh, pull their spider LinkedIn and stuff like that. Well, guess what? Kind of people you don't see on LinkedIn is really the disadvantaged populations that you're trying to help with your software, but you're modeling off of career paths, off of the people that don't um, have those backgrounds. And so uh, that bothers me, right? So, so you have to constantly evaluate your AI models, uh, to be able to normalize them, um, and to then run other populations, uh, through them. So your target population has to use the same AI technology and you have to be able to evaluate the outcomes for them as well, Well, the data to be able to normalize it. So when you're talking about the date, the challenge of data and how parent will go Mm -hmm. in and actually connect the dots here on data, that's Either it's bad data or it's uh, the wires are mixed up kind of a thing. And you guys go in and spring clean on that. I would think then that over time, the AI, if you implement it beyond resumes and CVs, could improve even because doesn't AI, isn't AI, um, it's only as good as the data you put into it. Yes, that's entirely true. So we, we have a case management system. The kind of the heart of our system is case management. So a lot of adult education organizations, there's nine metropolitan areas in California, the whole state of Colorado, Virginia, you know, Florida. Um, so, so so we do referrals, right? So we we uh, identify the barriers to employment that someone has. So so think about this: like single mom, three kids at different ages, 
right? And you're on these government services to be able to make ends meet, and you're making this amount of money. Well, one of the problems is is that the math to figure out the impact of a $4 an hour raise is almost impossible to do because the simple math is, hey, guess what? We got you a new job with $4 more an hour. You're going to make $8,000 more a year. What they're not telling you is you're going to lose $19,000 in benefit because you just crossed the fiscal cliff. So you now no longer qualify for this other $11,000 worth of benefits, right? And, and so the math to be able to do that because your kids are at eight, three, and one um, is very different. So think about, um, hey, you have a plan. You'd like to be a nurse in, in five years. Well, we're embedding AI in our system and also a fiscal cliff calculator to be able to look at career paths of others and say, hey, you're referring somebody to this, but single moms that are English language learners in this zip code for the last X number of years have had better uh, income outcomes by following this path. Now, that's AI that is based on the audience that you're trying to help because it's saying people like her, are their lives are improving if they do this, this, and this, and it may not be the normal path. But it also helps you do math, right? So you say, hey, you want to do this in five years, but in while you're in nursing school based on your current plan, you're going to go from being in the black to being in the red because two of your kids are going to fall off of the government services. So guess what? you're probably going to drop out of nursing school. But if you did it a year and a half earlier, then you're probably going to graduate nursing school, get the job before you lose those benefits. Now that is machine learning. That is really good math. And that is, you know, uh, an artificial intelligence that can actually identify what is the appropriate path for you? And that's math that somebody in the field, I can't do that math. Somebody in the field who's, you know, gets 30 minutes with someone, they can't do that kind of math. And, no, and, and so that is like very, very beneficial. It's completely transformational. It's, it's, and their job is, so this is a, this is a, it, a very disturbing statistic. Um, 92% of the uh, people that go to a workforce center, are never referred to a single service or any education. So what is the point they of that say, service? Not to be the uh, they say, I captain need a job. obvious. I need a job. They go, what do you, what do you know how to do? Apply here. So there's, there's like 4.3% that are referred to education. And there's a, there's around 4% that are referred to a service like training um, or you know, whether it's drug rehab or, or whether it's a, you know, some kind of uh, service that helps you prepare for work. Right. Um, and, and so, and some of those are probably the same person. So the number is actually even worse. Um, and so they just say, I, I, uh, go to a job. Now they're probably going to be back in a month or three months because they didn't like that job. And that job has no context to what their desires are or what their needs are long-term. It's just like, it's an immediate you know, we're treating uh, them like, Michael, we're, we're treating them like mental health patients. Uh, long ago in a past life of mine, when I worked in psychiatric hospitals, you would just cycle through, right? Someone would come in, they could only stay for a certain period of time, and then they would be bumped out, put yeah. on the road, on the sidewalk. They'd go to another hospital, they'd spend their 10 days there, and then they'd come on yeah. back. And sadly, oh, that's exactly, if we sort of change the labels or the words we're using, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also statistically... Uh, 
although somebody may qualify, uh, be eligible for four or five services, on average, they connect to 1.2, right? Because of they, they have to fill out the same form yep. over and over and over. Eventually, they get frustrated or they just don't even know how to find it. And that would require this overworked, poor case manager to follow up with you and say, hey, I got a new thing for you. Did you do the other thing? How did it work out? And and they just res- are resource constrained. They can't do that. So we're trying to automate that process of uh, using AI and, and uh, uh, the data connections driven by how those professionals say, well, if they have this, then we would want to connect them there. And, and then to be able to then track it, the reality of what happens once they go there and then introduce them to another service. So six months after using our platform, instead of 1.2 services they get connected to, they're connected to 2.7. Same services, same people, right? We just automate the process. Let's close with this, Michael. So I'm going to take some liberties here, so feel free to correct me. But I would imagine that after you had a very successful career in software and strategy and all the things that you were doing, you went to Russia, you saw that, you were there for seven years, and you came back and you decided to start your own thing, right? That you know, you're an entrepreneur and so you want to succeed in that manner. But I'm wondering about the percentage and how it changes over time, because as I hear you talk and experience you even through this Zoom, I'm hearing someone who isn't really running a company. It's a passion project that happens to be a company. Am I am I far afield on that? Tell me a little bit about yeah. how this speaks to you, not just the guy that started working in the personal computer space in the 80s, but the young boy that was dealing with all those challenges and working four jobs just to support a family that was struggling with resources. Yeah, uh, that's you're not far off at all. Um, you know, I, I when I when I left, my career kind of at its peak at 40 years old, 39 years old, to go to a foreign country to coach people on my own dime, pretty much. Um, you know, I I had made a decision that I didn't want, he sold a lot of software to be the thing on my tombstone. Um, that I wanted my life to matter. And my experience um, had led me to um, be able to empathize with people who don't really know where to go. And um, and so I, was, I became a good coach. I became a good question asker. Um, and I helped people. And then I, I came across some some science and some technology, and I said, I it, I can just do this one person at a time for the years that I have left, or I could maybe help all the people like me who had dedicated their lives to walking alongside others as they they try to help them, you know, change the generational path uh, of their uh, families, and it, I think. I made a decision that I wanted to help the alongsiders. I wanted to go alongside the alongsiders, if you will, um, because that would provide a scale and, you know, it's kind of the teach a man to fish thing. Right. Um, uh, and, and, and so that was, that was my decision. And I, I started to look for technology and look for solutions to be able to solve that problem. And uh, it took about four or five years of like a lot of trial and error. And I'm like, Oh, wait, this is the huge problem that I can make a difference in. And um, it's hard, I have to say, it's uh, selling into government, uh, which is primarily our, our client, is, is not the easiest way to make a living. Um, but uh, when my team goes to a prison and spends half a day 
um, with prisoners and the, the people that are there, or they go to a workforce center and they come back before a deployment and they go, Michael, let me show you how hard it is for these people to help the folks they serve. We're going to change their lives. And I just get excited. And they're like, that matters, you know? You are what I like to call a good human, Michael. Um, I hope that people are paying attention to what you guys are doing, uh, not just as a parent, but as a, a citizen of this country. I think too often it's it's so easy to just defer things that aren't my own personal problem, right? I think that society is struggling with that. And you're taking it head on and you're bringing compassion, leadership, and strategy in an area that we desperately need support in. So I want to make sure people can connect with Michael and Perrin. You can go to Perrin.com. That's P-A-I-R in.com anywhere else that they should go michael uh no we just head on right up there and if you want to connect to me you can connect to me there or uh, on my linkedin okay. uh which is michael l simpson um on linkedin so. well next time i hope it's in person sir you're doing mm -hmm. amazing work we need it um and i hope people are smart enough to pick up your phone calls we want to thank michael simpson he's the ceo and co-founder of parent i'm your host dr rod berger this concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.